So for the last couple of weeks, as we've continued our study of this book of 1 Corinthians, we've been employing two metaphors to kind of help us access the fullness of what it is that Paul's been trying to say to us. And those two metaphors are, first of all, a house, and then secondly, it's a table. And so we've said that our lives are sort of like a house. And here's what Paul's been doing in this part of the letter. He's walking around inside the house that is us, and he's going into every room, and he's rifling through every closet, and he's sifting through every drawer and every box and every medicine cabinet. He's crawled through the crawl space, we've said. He's climbed through the attic. There's nowhere in our lives that he hasn't gone. And here's what he's been doing the whole of the time, collecting things up. So he's collected up all that we have. He's collected up all that we are. And what has he done? He's placed it, metaphorically speaking, of course, on a table before us. And he said, hey, have a seat. I want to talk about this. Enjoy this, he says. It's God's gift to you. It's wonderful. It's a blessing. But enjoy it knowing something, knowing that something else is far by magnitudes of order more significant than all that you have and than all that you are, even than your very life. Paul writes this with his blood. He's martyred for this faith. He's very serious. That's something is Christ in this kingdom. That's something, practically speaking, is His gospel mission in this world. It is this mission that He's given to us of taking His gospel to every people group on the planet, starting in our homes and then in our offices and then in our schools. And the one I want to focus on today is in our city. Every people group in our city, I want you to think about the people groups in our city. We are have many. And the gospel is for all of them. For every one of them. And so what Paul's been saying the last couple of weeks is, okay, well, look, so here's the deal. When something you have or something that you are, be that not just a material possession. It could be pride. It could be ignorance. It could be selfishness. It could be fear. When something on that table of yours stands between you and your ability to offer Christ, to bring the gospel to any people group, I'm going to focus on the city, in this city... All right, well, then here's what you need to do. You need to deal with that. You need to sacrifice that. You need to give that up. You need to give that away. You need to let go of that because there's something more important. And it's bringing the gospel to people who bear the image of God just like you and who possess eternal souls just like me and just like you. So that's what he said the last couple of weeks. Here's what he's going to do today. Today he comes with a different table and it's before you. You see it, it's the table of the Lord. It's the table that emblematically, at least, contains all that Christ has and that all that Christ is upon it. And he's going to say to us, hey, this is really good news. This table is for you, but it's not just for you. It's for anyone, and that's the operative word. It is for anyone who, like you, comes to this table in humility. That is to say, comes to this table submitting to the Christ of this table and to what the Christ of this table says about us. And what is that? That we are, the whole of us, a ruined race. And every one of us is broken in a whole variety of ways and no one more or less than anyone else. Just differently. Differently broken. But broken nonetheless. And that there is salvation and healing to be found in Jesus as you bring your life, not just your sin, but you, <laughs> the whole of you, and in humility and in repentance, which isn't, I feel sorry, and please forgive me, but now I'm going to go do this again. It's, no, 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 I feel sorry, and I'm powerless against this. Dear God, give me your spirit. Give me your people. Give me community. Give me prayer. Give me a way by which to learn to live in a way that brings you glory in this life. In heaven as we'll see today, and on earth 
And as you come to this table in faith, believing that Christ is who He claims to be, that He's done what He has said is finished for you, and receive it by faith. My goodness, this table is a table that is for anyone, and that's self-evident, I hope, because it is a table for broken people. And please hear this. It's one of my mantras today. We are, all of us, broken people, just in different ways. So today, as we return to this study, we come to an incredibly sensitive and difficult topic. As I scan the different topics that we could take up, I'm honestly not sure that there's a more challenging one than this. It's hard. It's painful. And it's very difficult to be heard. So I want to tip you off to human nature. And I know a little bit about human nature because I'm a human. So I have this nature. Here's what we tend to do. And we become aware of what the topic is. And you'll become aware. It's not going to be unclear. You'll know it pretty quickly. Here's what we tend to do. Our guard goes up. And now we start to listen for what we want to hear and even demand to hear or what we fear we're going to hear. And depending upon which group you're in, it's going to be the same thing. Is Tom going to uphold the traditional biblical principles in regard to this? Answer, yes, I am. And you either demand to hear that, or you're fearful that you might. And then what happens is, as soon as you hear what either you're demanding to hear, or fearful that you're here, what do you do? You shut down. Okay, that's it, got it, check, and I'm checking out for the rest of the message. And the reality, I think, is that the rest of the message is the most important part. It's the part that the convinced need to hear, and it's a part that those who feared that, all right, well, I guess he's going to be one of those people, even though I might not be, might be most healed by. So with that in mind, and with everyone's attention now for sure, we pick up our study with the next verse right from where we left off last week. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 2, Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But now he's going to give to them in just a second a tradition that they're not maintaining, but that he delivered. However, he sets it up with a statement that is just kind of prefatory. It's not the main issue, but it is an issue and it's particularly an issue for some of us. He starts with the authority structures between Christ and man and wife and husband, that's the one we wrestle with, and between the Son of God, now don't miss this, who is every bit the equal of God the Father, but who's different in role, who's submitted in love. He sets up the real issue with this. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Please don't let that distract you or trip you up. I know that some of you are going, please explain that, and others are going, eh, I've heard that for years, I've studied it, I've got it, I'm good. I'm going to speak to it, but it's not the main point. We'll get to it, but we're not going to spend a ton of time. So I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then he continues, and he says, every man who prays or prophesies, the idea being in a worship service in a church, okay, with his head covered with some kind of a shawl that was typically in that day, stereotypically female. It was worn by a woman or by really long hair, which I don't really think is the issue, but was a hairstyle that was unique to women in that day. 
Every man who prays or prophesies like that, he says, dishonors his head. Now, who's his head? Because he told us in that prefatory comment, the head of every man is Christ. So then what is he saying? Because I'm just going to get right to the point, okay? He's saying it is dishonoring to Christ for a Christian man to dress or to present himself in such a way as to look like a woman. Now do you know what the issue is? And he goes on. He says, but every wife who prays or prophesies in a worship service with her head uncovered, that is to say, like that of a man, absent the shawl that was typical to the female in that day, or with really, really, really short hair, which would have been unique to men in that culture. Well, every wife who does that dishonors her head, which I know that this is maybe an issue for some of you, but he's already told us who that is, the head of every wife is the husband. And so he's saying that it is dishonoring to a Christian husband for his Christian wife to dress her to present herself in such a way as to look like a man and thus blurring the distinctions between the God-ordained, God-given genders. He continues and says, since it is the same, it's dishonoring, he says, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. In fact, Paul says, for if a wife will not cover her head with a shawl, stereotypically female in their culture, then she should just cut her hair short. In other words, he says, look, if you're going to act like a man by not wearing a shawl, you might as well go all the way, cut your hair and wear it all the time, and not just in church. It extends beyond the worship service is the point. To which he then adds, but since, and this is painful. <laughs> this is hard to say because it's hard to hear. And if it's not hard to say for believers... I think that says something about our hearts. It says something perhaps about our pride. It says something perhaps about the fact that we therefore then must be way out of touch with our own particular form of brokenness. If we enjoy somehow walking around the community and hitting people who have no context for this, who maybe don't even believe in the Word of God, who haven't been raised in the church, who haven't studied these issues, who have no foundational understanding by which, no categories by which to evaluate or analyze or receive any of this, and yet if we delight in any way, shape, or form in sort of walking around and whacking them with our truth hammer, just because they're broken differently than we are, no more, no less, just differently, that's a problem. The heart of a broken person looks at this and realizes, this is a tough message for some people to hear. This is a painful thing. It needs to be said, for it is the Word of God. And the Word of God is truth and life. And it leads to freedom. But my goodness, what a cluttered topic. How difficult it is to hear that and believe it in the milieu that is this. Nevertheless, he says, since it is, here it is, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair, to shave her head, and therefore to present as a man in that culture, let her cover her head, the clear implication being that if she's a female, that's how she should present. If you're a male, that's how you should present. And so now you know why when I opened God's Word and began to read ahead like a week ago, and I realized, oh, good grief, this is what this is, I really, really wished that I had scheduled my vacation two weeks earlier. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, actually, that's not true. I, I think that, you know, one of the disciplines of preaching through a book is the book tells you what you're going to preach on next. Unless you're dishonest. It just, it does. And the reality is, if this is what we're going to preach on next, 
I, I want to be the one who does it. I, I'd like to be the guy who does it. And so as fearful as it is, I embrace it nevertheless. Who really does, in fact, long to preach a topic on this subject? Let me, let me amp it up. Who longs to preach a topic on this subject in our city in which human sexuality, including our genders, is a massively important, but then also massively inflammatory, oh my goodness, you can almost not be heard for what you're saying, kind of a topic. And who wants to do that this week? This week in which the LGBTQ community in our city, and that's what I'm focused on, and I hope and pray the Christian community in our city is absolutely reeling from what happened in Orlando. And yet, I plan out our preaching schedule almost a year in advance. In other words, like almost a year ago, I could have told you what the text would be for this weekend. And God's been blessing this study as we've gone through it. And more than that, you know, as if you're involved in our personal worship, the majority of our church gets the passage of Scripture before the weekend and works through it personally. So like the congregation has been working through this personally and wondering, what's he going to do with this? What's this even about? What's going on with this? And if I'm going to be honest what it's about, we have to deal with it. So we've got a con congregation of people who are expecting to at least hear about this text. And so I think, frankly, providentially, the Lord arranged for us to have to preach on this text. You have to do it because I don't think it's something I would have chosen to do, honestly, on this weekend. And yet I think it's something to be embraced. The problem that I have as somebody who comes to God's Word and authentically believes that this is, in fact, the Word of the Creator God to us, that it is life and that it is truth for me, for you, and for the world, is that Paul doesn't skip it. And I can't either. And let me tell you what else Paul doesn't do, because he had every opportunity to do this. He doesn't take this issue of the authority structure in the home, which again is, is kind of ancillary. It's a prefatory issue. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it. Or this issue of maintaining our God-given distinctions and genders. He doesn't take these issues and then tie them to his unique culture and day and age, first century Hellenistic you know, culture. He doesn't do that. Now, he speaks to what's normative in his culture, what's masculine and what's feminine, but he ties these issues to the creation story. And you know that because he continues in verse 7. And he says, For a man ought not to cover his head, the idea being that the way that a woman in his culture would typically have done, since he, meaning man, a little confusing, is the image and glory of God. Now that's confusing because if you know the creation story, which is absolutely what he's now taking us to, you know that when God created man, male, and female, he created them both in the image of God. So what is this about then? Why is man the glory in the image of God? Because he was the first created. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, breathed into him, and he became a living soul. He was the first image bearer of the Lord God. And in that sense, man is the glory of God. And you know that because now notice who the woman is the glory of. The woman is the glory of man. For man was not made, that's creation, from woman, but woman was made from man. And in that sense, she is his glory. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so then you just kind of go, well, how was she created for man? I mean, if you don't know the story, and how was she created for him? 
Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning after creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them and forming the first man from the dust of the earth, you remember, and breathing into him and he becomes a living soul, God, for the first time, having declared at every stage of the creation story that everything was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Okay, he declares something not to be good in Genesis 2.18. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good, which is alarming, Uh uh-oh, something's not good, there's a problem that the man should be alone, there's the problem, here's the solution. God says, therefore, I will make him a helper fit for him. And the word fit means equal to and adequate for him. And so when God creates man, male and female, he creates them fully as equals in every way. Equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth, equal in standing before the Lord God, but different in two very significant ways. One is gender, and literally every cell in our body, chromosomally speaking, testifies to that. The other is role within the family. Equal, but there is a, a difference in role, even as God the Son is submitted, though He is fully equal to the will of the Father. That's reflected in the way that God originally designed the family. And what Paul is saying in Genesis 11 is, hey guys, we're going to go back to the original design, and here's what I'm going to say in this unique people in all the earth, this Christian community, this people who have the Spirit, who have the Word, who have each other, who have the capacity to develop these understandings and categories and so forth. Okay, those distinctions need to be maintained and respected is, where he, is what he's saying. But as you continue that story that he's referring to, I've talked about this in the past, but, but what you're expecting now is that God, you know, he's stated the problem, not good for the man to be alone. He's stated the solution, help or fit for him. What you're expecting is that God is now going to make the woman and bring her to the man. Problem solved. But But the Lord doesn't do that. You get this kind of weird, odd story about the animals. And so he brings all the animals to the first man for him to name the animals. Why? Because God's not good at naming things because in his infinite mind, he couldn't come up with enough names. Is that it? God, just give it to the man. It's a pain. You know, I've got other things to do. No, because he's teaching the man something. He's cultivating something in the man. He is preparing in the man a heart for the woman. And not to be abusive of the woman, not to dominate over the woman, not to be some kind of a dictator, not to take advantage of, but in fact to treasure her. That's the whole idea because he brings the animals to this man who has been given the mission of filling the whole earth with godly people. And who has no woman, can't do it. And he brings the animals two by two. That's the idea. Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Ant, you know, Mr. and Mrs. You get the point? Until Adam finally realizes, A, there's no Mrs. Man, and B, good grief, is she valuable. He cultivates in the man through this parade a heart that is prepared to treasure the woman. And then he creates her, and how does he do it? He takes the sinless man and he causes him to sleep a deep sleep. Sleep in the Bible elsewhere is used metaphorically of death. Paul says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He's not talking about those who were taking a nap. He's talking about Christian people who have died and he's saying, look, here's the deal. Death for the believer in Jesus is like unto sleep. It is something that we expect upon the return of Christ that we will be awakened from. That's the point. 
So God takes the sinless man, he causes him to sleep a deep sleep. While the sinless man is sleeping, he's pierced in the side. He's wounded. From the wounding of the sinless man, God fashions the bride. And then he awakens him. He raises him from sleep. And he presents him with his bride. And what does the man do? He sings. He rejoices. He waxes poetic. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She is my glory. That's a really great perspective. That's not very threatening, is it? So what is that if not a picture of the gospel? The sinless Son of God. That He might have a bride. That's the will of the Father for Him. The sinless Son of God, though He is every bit the equal of the Father, did what? Submitted, though it cost Him His life to do that. It's kind of a heavy price. And He slept the sleep of death by the will of His Father. And how do they confirm His death? By piercing His side with a spear. It's the only piercing He receives while He's asleep, if you will. And it is from the wounding of Christ, it is from the suffering of Christ, it is from the death of Christ that God gathers up that which is necessary to forgive all who come to Him. All who come to Him in submission and repentance and faith. It's by His wounds that we are healed. And He raises Him from the dead on Easter. That's the idea. And He's fashioning a bride. And I'm sorry, but a bride has a different gender. In that, we see a picture, first of all, of one who is equal, who submits. And in that, we see a picture of self-sacrificing, lay my life down if necessary, servant leadership that we as men are to bring to our homes. But Paul, my point is, in 1 Corinthians 11, is taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he's saying, listen... I want you to look at the design here. God creates man, male and female, and equal in every way, but different in two significant ways. One role, one gender. And what he's saying is that needs to be respected in the church. And then he continues. Chapter 11, verse 10. He says that this original design of God for the family and for human sexuality is why, now he now goes on, that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head in his first century culture because when she doesn't do that, she's not behaving as the uniquely wonderful woman that she was created to be. And then he adds, because of the angels, which is a really curious little statement. What in the world does that mean? And there's a lot of discussion about that, but I think part of what that means is that our lives don't just take place before the audience of earth, but before the audience of heaven. And I think Job teaches us that. Job suffers massively and in ways that had to be terrifically confusing. God arranged every circumstance of that man's life in such a way as to cause him to believe legitimately if he forsook the Lord, which he doesn't, that God had forsaken him. Yet he clings to faith. He perseveres. And nobody ever explains that to him in this life. But in heaven, the audience watches. And the Lord is praised. Paul continues, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for his woman was made from man. And that first story that he ties all of this to, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. And then he goes on to talk about men with long hair in his culture that doesn't apply to us, and women with short hair in his culture that doesn't apply to us. But I think at this point you get the point, and the point is that the original design of God for the family, for human sexuality, including gender, needs to be maintained and respected, brokenness notwithstanding. 
And as a Christian pastor and person who actually believes that this is the word of the Creator God and that it is life and that it is truth, I must affirm what the word of God says, which, if you missed it, is what I just did about 48 times. But here's what else I must do. This is the rest of the message, okay? I must also, week by week, as we come to every single passage of Scripture, affirm every other form of human brokenness that it speaks to equally, including everyone that applies to me and everyone that applies to you. And I must also, I think, teach you and lead by example to believe and to understand that we do not need to affirm human brokenness of any kind and call it anything other than what it in fact is, which is a form of human brokenness in order to affirm and love the broken. in order to affirm and love the broken. We don't need to redefine it, but we do need to love the broken. And you say, well, all right, so how do I do that? I mean, what does that entail? What do I do? I I don't really have a complete list of answers for you, but I'll start with what I don't think that any of us ever should do. We should never hate another person simply because they are broken in a way differently than we are. No more, no less, just different. Maybe more obvious but no more, no less. Just different. We shouldn't discriminate against them. We shouldn't ridicule them or ever make them the point of a joke. We should not do any of those kinds of things. We shouldn't foment anger. We should not foment fear. And here's something else I wrote down. We shouldn't feel indifferent when something like the horrific attack in Orlando happens. It should rock us to our core. Those people are people. We share a common humanity. We share a common country. We share a common city. And we ourselves too are broken. Just as much. And when or if we feel indifferent, that's something wrong with us. There's something wrong in here that we need to confess and sacrifice and deal with. Instead, I think what we need to do toward every kind of human brokenness is to get in touch with our own brokenness so much so that we are humbled to the point where we're willing to sacrifice anything on our table to take the gospel to anyone, to make the table available to anyone, to say, hey, there's a seat next to this table for you right next to me, okay? If you come in humility, if you come in repentance and faith, and here, I think, is what that requires. And I, I am by no means an expert on this. Just, I'm just not. You know? And I think that's part of my realization of this week as I've thought it through. I've spent a fair amount of time studying and reading books and, uh, on, on the topic of homosexuality, which is a different subject. It's related oftentimes, but it's different. And I feel far more comfortable thinking about that and developing that then I do something like this. I've not done a bunch of reading, so I'm not an expert. And really, that's kind of where I start. I said, I think it starts by seeking to gain understanding. That's point number one. Why? Because what we don't understand, we by instinct fear. And what we fear, we by instinct fight. And it seems to me that we need to stop fighting against people that are broken differently than us. And we need to find ways to, to fight for them. To understand them, not to fear them. And to come to the conclusion, and I think I can state this with a good deal of certitude, that as with homosexuality, you know, these guys don't choose this. 
They don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm a man, but today I think I'm going to you know, be a woman because that's just, I'm going to choose to feel, I don't know. You don't choose who you're sexually attracted to either. I mean, if you think about it as you're growing up, you know, I'll just use myself as an example, okay? Girls are icky and annoying. Girls are icky and annoying. Girls are icky and annoying. I get to be about 12, and now they're an obsession for me. You know, I mean, it's, what happened? Did I wake up at the age of 12 and go, hey, you know what? I think all of us, I'm going to choose today to now be attracted to girls. No. It just happens. <laughs> and so it is with boys who all of a sudden wake up and realize, I'm not attracted to girls. And Christian boys who are devastated by that and feel very alone and beg God to change it. People do not choose to be different in these kinds of ways. And when we say that they do, we violate common sense for crying out loud and every experience we ourselves have had with our own sexuality, which parenthetically is also very broken. So we need to develop understanding. Secondly, and maybe I'm out kicking my coverage on this, I could be wrong about this, which is my lack of understanding, but I put down, I think that we need to spend some time developing what biblical manhood and womanhood really is, because it, it seems to me, and I may be wrong about this, but gender confusion, gender dysphoria is another name for it, seems to happen at the intersection of biology and sociology. That is to say, between how one's given birth sex intersects or interacts or relates to how that person lives or functions or is perceived or perceives oneself within the context of one's culture. And here's the deal with the culture. The culture has all kinds of standards, as they did in Paul's day, of what is stereotypically male or stereotypically female. And I think sometimes we communicate to people unfairly because that's not what actual manhood or womanhood is, and that maybe they're not quite living up to the standard, when in fact that's not the case. And it's not right, thirdly. I think we need to remember, as we'll see next week as we move into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that as one part of the body suffers, guys, every part of the body suffers. Every part of the body suffers. And I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, there are many people in this church who suffer in a variety of ways in regard to this topic, as well as the topic of homosexuality. Many. And we need to cultivate an environment in which we can, the whole of us, suffer together no matter what our form of brokenness is and without feeling painted with a brush of shame or with guilt. We need to be able to come forward and to say, I am broken in this way and not to feel judged, not to feel scrutinized, not to feel like people are going to think I have failed as a parent if that's an issue with one of my kids, not to be feared, not to be misunderstood. Fourthly, we must learn how to more effectively dialogue in humility and grace and compassion with the LGBTQ community in our city. We need to stop talking at them, and we need to start listening to them, and we need to declutter the topic from all of the politics and all of the junk that clutters it up and makes it almost impossible for us to ascribe sincerity, to actually believe what another person is saying to us, because there's got to be an agenda somehow, some way attached to this. You know what? We need to concern ourselves primarily with the gospel. I think we need also to look for ways to be caring and compassionate, overtly. To show that when they weep, we weep. Authentically. I received a phone call from a man who attends this church, not all the time, but pretty frequently, and he has for years. 
uh, and he is a part of the LGBTQ community, and he called me on, I guess it was Monday or Tuesday, and I talked to him, and he said, Tom, I just want to apologize for something. I said, well, what is it? And he said, you know, I just, I, I've been angry. I've been angry at the church, and I just want to apologize for you. And I said, well, what happened? He said, one person from my church, this church, called me to see if I knew anybody, if anyone in Orlando that was killed or injured, and, I, and obviously I was not that one person. And and so I, I said, man, it, we're good, you know. And, and so anyway, after the phone call, I hung up, and I thought about it for a while, and I, and I thought, you know, if this had happened in Fort Lauderdale, which it may someday, I would like to think, and I do believe, that he would have been one of the first people that I would have called, one of a handful that I would have called, like, right out of the gate to see if they're okay. It never occurred to me, and this is a testimony to my ignorance, to not thinking very carefully about this, that maybe he would have known somebody because it was in Orlando, and yet I think it should have occurred to me. I think that's a reasonable thought. Why? Because this is a very tight-knit community within our community, and why is this a very tight-knit community, though it is very diverse? Because their suffering and their ostracism drives them together and unifies them. And some of that suffering and some of that ostracism has come from the church. Then lastly, I think we need to remember that the table of the Lord is for anyone. It's kind of like the point of the whole deal if you've missed it. It's for anyone who comes to it in humility and repentance and faith. It's what it takes to come to the table. And we need to do whatever we need to do to get that message to this community. So, what does that mean for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Your Son, You did not ostracize us. You did not exclude us from the work of Your Spirit. You did not exclude us from the preaching of Your Word. You did not exclude us, Lord, from Your church, from Your community, from Your people. Father, I pray that You would give us wisdom to know what to do and what not to do, and I don't have all the answers. How to handle ourselves in the midst of a world that is broken, even as we are, of all the people on the planet, Lord, we should be most in touch with our own need, with our own weakness, with our own brokenness, and frankly, most understanding of the broken condition of every other human being on the planet. Lord, give us grace. Strengthen and give wisdom to us that we might learn and understand wisely without changing the definitions, Lord, without compromising Your truth in some way. How to live as people who are full of grace and truth. For that is the characterization of the ministry of Your Son. He is the one full of grace and truth. Do this, we pray, for the furtherance of your gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.